0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I've got a nice sci-fi story for you to doze off to tonight. And before we get to the reading, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a site where you can go and uh, be a part of making the show and get an ad-free version of the podcast for just two bucks a month. So this week's patrons, Daria, Amber Michael, Deborah Mendino, Tie-Dye Runner, John, and BLC, Gerbil Brain. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. I really, really, really appreciate it, and uh, I hope the show continues to uh, give you a better night's sleep. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com which is where you can go and directly support creators of the work that you like and appreciate um, and get cool perks in return. Um, Like I said, uh, for $2 a month on Patreon, you get a totally ad-free version of the show. Uh, For $5, you get access to the exclusive poetry feed, which is over 50 additional episodes. Uh, just of poetry that are not on the regular show but no matter how much you donate even if it's a dollar I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do so if you would like to be a part of making this show have your name read in the opening credits uh, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio thank you and as always the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana well, tonight uh, kind of in honor of Daylight Savings I am going to be reading a, the first chapter from uh, Four Day Planet by Henry Beam Piper. I've loved reading um, sci-fi books on the show and this one especially is um, delightfully written. Kind of reads like uh, the beginning of a like a heist movie or something like that. And um, yeah, I also thought the title was extremely fitting as... Time seems to be in flux right now with daylight savings. I personally am a huge fan of today. It's kind of one of my favorite holidays. I love having more daylight. It makes me really, really happy to just instantly gain an extra hour of sun. Weirdly enough, um, pretty much... For my whole life, I've been an avid runner, and while I have very much tried to be one of those people who wakes up in the morning and runs, maybe you listening are one of those. If so, congratulations. Uh, But I have never, ever been one of those people. I love, love running at sunset with the day already behind me, having accomplished things, hopefully. And if I haven't really done anything that day, then at least I have um, my run at the end of the day to make me feel like I did something. But yeah, I always just naturally love to run at sunset and dwindling hours of the day. And um, it's funny because that pretty much changes when I run year round. So in the winter if I'm running outside like a crazy person, which I do, I'll have to start running around, you know, three or three thirty. And in the springtime, like, you know, starting now I'll be running a little later, around five or six. In the summer I'm perfectly content running around. 7.30, 8 o'clock, so um, my days are very much dictated by the setting of the sun, and I have come to accept it and really appreciate it, which is what makes today such a lovely day for me, and I hope it is a lovely day for you too, and you got a whole extra hour of sleep last night, how cool is that? So, in honor of the shifting of time tonight, I hope you can fall deeply asleep to Four Day Planet by Henry Beam Piper. You're going to hear the first chapter of this story read once, so you can fall deep asleep, and then it will repeat itself, so you can stay deep asleep. And now, is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter one The Ship from Terra I went through the gateway, towing my equipment in a contra gravity hamper over my head. As usual, I was wondering what it would take short of a revolution to get the city of Port Sander as clean and tidy and well lighted as the spaceport area. I knew dad's editorials and my sarcastic news stories wouldn't do it. we have been trying long enough. The two girls in bikinis in front of me pushed on, still gabbling about the fight one of them had with her boyfriend, and I closed up behind the half-dozen monster hunters in long trousers, ankle boots, and short boat jackets with big knives on their belts. They must have all been from the same crew, because they weren't arguing about whose ship was fastest, had the toughest skipper, and made the most money. They were talking about the price of tallow wax, and they seemed to have picked up a rumor that it was going to be cut another 10 centisols a pound. I eavesdropped shamelessly, but it was the same rumor I'd picked up myself a little earlier. Hi, Wall. somebody behind me called out, looking for some news that's fit to print. I turned my head. It was a man of about 35 with curly brown hair and a wide grin. Adolf Laudier, the entertainment promoter. He and Dad each owned a share in the Port Sander telecast station and split their time between his music and drama films and Dad's newscasts. All the news is fit to print. And if it's news, the Times prints it, I told him. Think you're going to get some good thrillers this time. He shrugged. I just asked that to make conversation. He never had any way of knowing what sort of films would come in. The ones the Pinamunde was bringing should be fairly new, because she was outbound from Terra. He'd go over what was aboard and trade one for one for the old films he'd shown already. They tell me there's a real old Terran-style western been showing on Voland that ought to be coming our way this time, he said. It was filmed in South America with real horses. That would go over big here. Almost everybody thought horses were as extinct as dinosaurs. I've seen so called westerns with the cowboys riding, fraying, outcry. I mentioned that and then added, they'll think the old cattle towns like Dodge and Abilene were awful sissy places, though. I suppose they were, compared to Port Sander, Lottier's son. Are you going aboard to interview the distinguished visitor? Which one, I asked. Glenn Murrell or Leo Belcher? Lottier called Leo Belcher something you won't find in the dictionary, but which nobody needs to look up. The hunters ahead of us heard him and laughed. They couldn't possibly have agreed more. He was going to continue with the fascinating subject of Mr. Leo Belcher's ancestry and personal characteristics and then bid it offshore. I followed his eyes and saw old Professor Hartzenbosch, the principal of the school, approaching. Ah, here you are, Mr. Laudier, he greeted I trust that I did not keep you waiting. Then he saw me. Why, it's Walter, boy. How's your father, Walter? I assured him as to dad's health, and inquired about his own, and then asked him how things were going at school. As well as could be expected, he told me and I gathered that he kept his point of expectation safely low. Then he wanted to know if I were going aboard to interview Mr. Murrell. Really, Walter, it is a wonderful thing that a famous author like Mr. Murrell had come here to write a book about our planet, he told me very seriously, and added as an afterthought. Have you any idea where he intends in staying while he was among us? Why, yes, I admitted. After the Piedemunde radioed us their passenger list, Dad talked to him by scream and invited him to stay with us. Mr. Murrell accepted, at least until he can find quarters of his own. There are a lot of good poker players in Port Sandor, but Professor Jan Hartzenbosch is not one of them. The look of disappointment would have been comical if it hadn't been so utterly pathetic. He'd been hoping to lasso Murel himself. I wonder if Mr. Murel could spare time to come to the school and speak to the students, he said, after a moment. I'm sure he could. I'll mention it to him, Professor. I promised. Professor Hartzenbosch bridled at that. The great author ought to be coming to his school out of respect for him, not because a 17-year-old cub reporter sent him. But then, Professor Hartzenbosch always took the attitude that he was conferring a favor on the times when he had anything he wanted publicity on. The elevator door opened, and Laudier and the professor joined in the push to get into it. I hung back, deciding to wait for the next one, so that I could get in first and get back to the rear, where my hamper wouldn't be in people's way. After a while, it came back empty and I got on. And when the crowd pushed off on the top level, I put my hamper back on the contra-gravity and towed it out into the outdoor air, which by this time had gotten almost as cool as a bake oven. I looked up at the sky, where everybody else was looking. The moon day wasn't visible, It was still a few thousand miles off planet. Big, ragged clouds were still blowing in from the west, very high, and the sunset was even brighter and redder than when I had seen it last ten hours before. It was now about 16.30. Now, before anybody starts asking just who's crazy... Let me point out that this is not on Terra, nor on Baldur, nor Thor, nor Odin, nor Freya, nor any other rational planet. This is Fenrir, and on Fenrir, the sunsets, like many other doings, are somewhat peculiar. Fenrir is the second planet of a G4 star. 650 light-years to the galactic southwest of the Sol System. Everything else equal. It should have been pretty much Terra-type, closer to a cooler primary, and getting about the same amount of radiation. At least, that's what the book says. I was born on Fenry, and have never been off it in the 17 years since. Everything else, however, is not equal. The Fenry year is a trifle shorter than the Terran year we use for the atomic era dating 8,000 and a few odd galactic standard hours. In that time, Fenry makes almost exactly four axial rotations. This means that on one side, the sun is continuously in the sky for a thousand hours, pouring down unceasing heat while the other side is in shadow. You sleep eight hours and when you get up and go outside in an insulated vehicle or an extreme environment Sue, you find that the shadows have moved only an inch or so and it's that much hotter. Finally, The sun crawls down to the horizon and hangs there for a few days. Periods of 24 G.S. hours, and then slides slowly out of sight. Then, for about a hundred hours, there is a beautiful, unfading sunset, and it's really pleasant outdoors. Then it gets darker and colder, until just before sunrise, it gets almost cold enough to freeze CO2. Then the sun comes up, and we begin all over again. You are picking up the impression, I trust, that as planets go, Fenry is nobody's bargain. It isn't a real hell planet, and spacemen haven't made a swear word out of its name, as they have with the name of fluorine Atmosphere Niflheim. But even the Reverend Hiram Zilker, the orthodox monophysite preacher, admits that it's one of those planets that the creator must have gotten a trifle absent-minded with. The chartered company that colonized it back at the end of the 4th century A.E. went bankrupt in ten years, and it wouldn't have taken that long. If communication between Terra and Fenry hadn't been a matter of six months each way. When the smash finally came, two hundred and fifty thousand colonists were left stranded. They lost everything they'd put into the company, which, for most of them, was all they had. Not a few lost their lives before the Federation Space Navy could get ships here to evacuate them. But about a thousand, who were too poor to make a fresh start elsewhere and too tough for Fenry to kill, refused evacuation, took over all the equipment and installations the Fenry Company had abandoned and tried to make a living out of the planet. At least they stayed alive. There are now 20-odd thousand of us, and while we were still very poor, we were very tough, and we brag about it. There were about 2,000 people, 10% of the planetary population on the wide concrete promenade around the spaceport landing pit. I came out among them and set down the hamper with my telecast cameras and recorders wishing as usual that I could find some 10- or 12-year-old kid weak-minded enough to want to be a reporter when he grew up so that I could have an apprentice to help me with my junk. As the star and only reporter of the greatest and only paper on the planet, I was always on hand when either of the two ships on the Terra and Milkron, the PM Monday, in the Cape Canaveral landing. Of course, we always talk to them by screen as soon as they come out of hyperspace and into radio range and get the passenger list and a speed recording of any news they are carrying from the latest native uprising on Thor to the latest political scandal on Venus. Sometime the natives of Thor won't be fighting anybody at all, or the Federation member Republic of Venus will have some non scandalous politics, and either will be the man bites dog story to end man bites dog stories. All the news is at least six months old, some more than a year. A spaceship can log a light year in 60 odd hours the radio waves still crawl along at the same old 186,000 MPS. I still have to meet the ships. There's always something that has to be picked up personally, usually an interview with some VIP traveling through. This time, though, the big story coming in on Pinamunday was a local item. Paradox. Dad says there is no such thing. He says a paradox is either a verbal contradiction and you get rid of it by restarting it correctly or it's a structural contradiction and you just call it an impossibility and let it go at that. In this case, what was coming in was a real live author who was going to write a travel book about Fenri, the planet with the four-day year. Glenn Mural, which sounded suspiciously like a nom de plume, and nobody here had ever heard of him. That was odd, too. One thing we can really be proud of here, besides the toughness of our citizens, is our public library. When people have to stay underground most of the time to avoid being fried and or frozen to death, they have a lot of time to kill And reading is one of the cheaper, more harmless and profitable ways of doing it. And travel books are a special favor here. I suppose because everybody is hoping to read about a worse place than Fenry. I had checked on Glenn Murrell at the library. None of the librarians had ever heard of him. And there wasn't a single mention of him in any of the big catalogs of publications. The first and obvious conclusion would be that Mr. Glenn Miro was some swindler posing as an author. The only objection to that was that I couldn't see why any swindler would come to Fenry, or what he'd expect to swindle the Fenriesians out of. Of course could be on the lam from somewhere but in that case why bother with all the cover story some of our better known citizens came here dodging warrants on other planets I was still wondering about Miral and somebody behind me greeted me and I turned around it was Tom Kivelson Tom and I are buddies when he's in poor. He's just a shade older than I am. He was 18 around noon, and my 18th birthday won't come until midnight. Fenry standard sundial time. His father is Joe Kivelson, the skipper of the Javelin. Tom is a sort of junior engineer, second gunner, and about third harpooner. We went to school together which is to say a couple of years at Professor Hartzenbosch's learning to read and write and put figures together. That is all the schooling anybody on Fenry gets, although Joe Kivelson sent Tom's older sister, Linda, to school on Terra. Anybody who stays here has to dig out education for himself. Tom and I were still digging for hours. Each of us envied the other, and we weren't thinking seriously about it. I imagine that sea monster hunting was wonderfully thrilling and romantic, and Tom had the idea that being a newsman was a real hot stuff. When we actually stopped to think about it, though, we realized that neither of us would trade jobs and take anything at all for Boo. Tom couldn't string together three sentences, no, one sentence, together to save his life, and I'm just a town boy who likes to live in something that isn't pitching end for end every minute. Tom is about three inches taller than I am, and about thirty pounds heavier. Like all monster hunters, he's trying to grow a beard, though at present it's just a blonde chin fuzz. I was surprised to see him dressed as I was, in shorts and sandals, in a white shirt and a light jacket. Ordinarily, even in town, he wears boat clothes. I looked around behind him and saw the brass tip of a scabbard under the jacket. Any time a hunter-shipman doesn't have his knife on him, he isn't wearing anything else. I wondered about his being in port now. I knew Joe Kivelson wouldn't bring his ship in just to meet the Pinamundi, with only a couple of hundred hours hunting left till the storms and the coal. I thought you were down in the South Ocean, I said. There's going to be a special meeting of the co-op, he said. We only heard about it last evening. By which he meant after 1,800 of the previous Galactic Standard Day. He named another hunter-ship captain, who would call the Javelin by screen. We screened everybody else we could. That was the way they ran things in the Hunter's Cooperative. Steve Rabbick would wait till everybody had their ships down on the coast of Herman Roach's land, and then he would call a meeting and pack it with his stooges and hooligans and get anything he wanted voted through. I'd always wondered how long the real hunters were going to stand for that. They'd been standing for it ever since I could remember anything outside of my own playpen, which of course hadn't been too long. I was about to say something to that effect, and then somebody yelled, there she is. I took a quick look at the radar bowls to see which way they were pointed, and followed them up to the sky, and caught a tiny twinkle through a cloud drift. After a moment's mental arithmetic to figure out how high she'd have to be to catch the sunlight, I relaxed. Even with the telephoto, I'd only get a picture of the size of a pinhead, so I fixed the position in my mind and then looked around at the crowd. Among them were two men, both well-dressed. One was tall and slender, with small hands and feet. The other was short and stout, with a scrubby, gray-brown mustache. The slender one had a bulge under his left arm, and the short and stout jaw bulged over the right hip. The former was Steve Ravik, the boss of the Hunter's Cooperative, and his companion was the Honorable Morton Hallstock, mayor of Port Sander, and consequently the planetary government of Fenry. They had held their respective positions for as long as I could remember anything at all. I can never remember an election in Port Sander, or an election of officers in the co-op. Ravik had a bunch of goons and trigger men. I could see a couple of them loitering in the background, who kept down opposition for him. So did Hallstar. Only has wore badges and called themselves police. Once in a while, Dad would write a blistering editorial about one or the other, or both of them. Whenever he did, I would put my gun on, and so would Julio Kubina, the one-legged compositor who was the third member of the Times staff, and we would take turns making sure nobody got behind Dad's back. Nothing ever happened, though, and that always rather hurt me. Those two racketeers were in so tight, they didn't need to care what the times printed or cast about them. Halstock glanced over in my direction and said something to Ravik. Ravik gave a sneering laugh, and then he crushed out the cigarette he was smoking on the palm of his left hand. That was a regular trick of his, showing how tough he was. Dad says that when you see somebody showing off, ask yourself whether he's trying to impress other people or himself. I wondered which was the case with Steve Raving. Then I looked up again. The Pinamunda was coming down as fast as she could without overheating from atmosphere friction. She was almost buckshot size to the naked eye, and a couple of tugs were getting ready to go up and meet her. I got the telephoto camera out of the hamper, checked it, and aimed it. It has a shoulder stock and hand grips and a trigger like a submachine gun. I caught the ship and the finder and squeezed the trigger for a couple of seconds. It would be about five minutes till the tugs got to her and anything else happened, so I put down the camera and looked around. Coming through the crowd, walking as though the concrete under him was pitching and rolling like a ship's deck when contragravity in a storm, was bishware. He got sight of us, waved, overbalanced himself and recovered. And then changed course to starboard and bore down on us. He was carrying about his usual cargo, and as usual the manifest would read Baldur Honey Rum from Harry Wong's Bar. Bish wasn't his real name. Neither, I suspected, was where. When he first landed on Fenry, some five years ago. Somebody had nicknamed him the Bishop, and before long that had gotten cut to one syllable. He looked like a Bishop, or at least like what anybody who's never seen a Bishop outside of a screenplay would think a Bishop looked like. He was a big man, not fat, but tall and portly. He had a ruddy face that always wore an expression of benevolent wisdom, and the more cargo he took on, the wiser and more benevolent he looked. He had iron-gray hair, but he wasn't old. You could tell that by the backs of his hands, they weren't wrinkled or creppy, and the veins didn't protrude. And drunk or sober, though I never remembered seeing him in the latter condition, he had the fastest reflexes of anybody I knew. I saw him once, standing at the bar in Harry Wong's, knock over an open bottle with his left elbow. He spun half around, grabbed it by the neck and set it up, all in one motion, without spilling a drop. And he went on talking as though nothing had happened. He was quoting Homer, I remember him you could tell that he was thinking in the original ancient Greek and translating it to lingua terra as he went. He was always dressed as he was now, in a conservative black suit, the jacket a trifle longer than usual, and a black neck cloth with an Uller organic opal pen. He didn't work at anything, but quarterly, once every planetary day. A draft on the banking cartel would come in for him, and he'd deposit it with Port Sander Fidelity and Trust. If anybody was unmannerly enough to ask him about him, he always said that he had a rich uncle on Terra. When I was a kid, well, more of a kid than I am now, I used to believe he really was a bishop. Unfrocked, of course, or ungaitered, or whatever they call it when they give a bishop the heave ho. A lot of people who weren't kids still believed that, and they blamed him on every denomination from Angelicans to Zen Buddhists, not even missing the Satanists, and there were all sorts of theories about what he'd done to get excommunicated, the mildest of which was that somewhere, there was a cathedral standing unfinished because he'd hypered out with the building fund. It was generally agreed that his ecclesiastical organization was paying him to stay out there in the boondocks where he wouldn't cause them further embarrassment. I was pretty sure, myself, that he was being paid by somebody, probably his family, to stay out of sight. The colonial planets are full of that sort of remittance men. Bish and I were pretty good friends. There were certain old ladies, of both sexes and all ages, of whom Professor Hartzenbosch was an example, who took Dad to task occasionally for letting me associate with him. Dad simply ignored them. As long as I was going to be a reporter... I'd have to have news sources, and Bish was a dandy. He knew all the disreputable characters in town, which saved me having to associate with all of them. And it is sad but true that you get very few news stories in Sunday school. Far from fearing that Bish would be a bad influence on me, he rather hoped I'd be a good one on Bish. I had that in mind, too, if I could think of any way of managing it. Bish had been a good man once. He still was, except for one thing. You could tell that before he'd started drinking, he'd really been somebody, somewhere. Then something pretty bad must have happened to him, and now he was there on Fenry, trying to hide from it behind a bottle. Something ought to be done to give him a shove up on his feet again. I hate waste, and a man of the sort he must have been turning himself into the rumpet he was now was waste of the worst kind. It would take a lot of doing, though, and careful, tactical planning. Preaching at him would be worse than useless, and so it's simply trying to get him to stop drinking. That would be what Doc Rojanski at the hospital would call treating the symptoms. The thing to do was make him want to stop drinking, and I didn't know how I was going to manage that. I thought a couple of times of getting him to work on the times, but we barely made enough money out of it for ourselves, and with his remittance, he didn't need to work. I had a lot of other ideas now and then, but every time I took a second look at one, they got sick and died. Chapter One, The Ship from Terra. I went through the gateway, towing my equipment In a contragravity hamper over my head. As usual, I was wondering what it would take, short of a revolution, to get the city of Port Sander as clean and tidy and well-lighted as the spaceport area. I knew Dad's editorials and my sarcastic news stories wouldn't do it. We've been trying long enough. The two girls in bikinis in front of me pushed on, still gabbling about the fight one of them had with her boyfriend, and I closed up behind the half-dozen monster hunters in long trousers, ankle boots, and short boat jackets with big knives on their belts. They must have all been from the same crew, because they weren't arguing about whose ship was fastest, had the toughest skipper, and made the most money. They were talking about the price of tallow wax, and they seemed to have picked up a rumor that it was going to be cut another ten centisols a pound. I eavesdropped shamelessly, but it was the same rumor I'd picked up myself a little earlier. Hi, Walt. Somebody behind me called out, looking for some news that's fit to print. I turned my head. It was a man of about 35 with curly brown hair and a wide grin. Adolf Laudier, the entertainment promoter. He and Dad each owned a share in the Port Sander telecast station and split their time between his music and drama films and Dad's newscasts. All the news is fit to print. And if it's news, the Times prints it, I told him. Think you're going to get some good thrillers this time. He shrugged. I just asked that to make conversation. He never had any way of knowing what sort of films would come in. The ones the Pina Moon Day was bringing should be fairly new, because she was outbound from Terra. He'd go over what was aboard and Trade one for one for the old films he'd shown already. They tell me there's a real old Terran-style western been showing on Voland that ought to be coming our way this time, he said. It was filmed in South America with real horses. That would go over big here. Almost everybody thought horses were as extinct as dinosaurs. I've seen so called westerns with the cowboys riding, fray and outcry. I mentioned that, and then added, They'll think the old cattle towns like Dodge and Abilene were awful sissy places, though. I suppose they were compared to Port Sander, Laudier sons are you going aboard to, to interview the distinguished visitor? Which one, I asked. Glenn Murrell or Leo Belsher? Laudier called Leo Belcher something you won't find in the dictionary, but which nobody needs to look up. The hunters ahead of us heard him and laughed. They couldn't possibly have agreed more. He was going to continue with the fascinating subject of Mr. Leo Belcher's ancestry and personal characteristics, and then bid it offshore. I followed his eyes and saw old Professor Hartzenbosch, the principal of the school, approaching. Ah, here you are, Mr. Laudier, he greeted. I trust that I did not keep you waiting. Then he saw me. Why, it's Walter, boy. How's your father, Walter? I assured him as to dad's health and inquired about his own, and then asked him how things were going at school. As well as could be expected, he told me, and I gathered that he kept his point of expectation safely low. Then he wanted to know if I were going aboard to interview Mr. Murel. Really, Walter, it is a wonderful thing that a famous author like Mr. Murel had come here to write a book about our planet, he told me very seriously, and added as an afterthought. Have you any idea where he intends on in staying while he was among us? Why, yes, I admit After the Piedemunde radioed us their passenger list, Dad talked to him by screen and invited him to stay with us. Mr. Murrell accepted, at least until he can find quarters of his own. There are a lot of good poker players in Port Sandor, but Professor Jan Hartzenbosch is not one of them. The look of disappointment would have been comical if it hadn't been so utterly pathetic. He had been hoping to lasso Murrell himself. I wonder if Mr. Murrell could spare time to come to the school and speak to the students, he said, after a moment. I'm sure he could. I'll mention it to him, Professor, I promised. Professor Hartzenbosch bridled at that. The great author ought to be coming to his school out of respect for him, not because a 17-year-old cub reporter sent him. But then, Professor Hartzenbosch always took the attitude that he was conferring a favor on the Times when he had anything he wanted publicity on. The elevator door opened, and Laudier and the professor joined in the push to get into it. I hung back, deciding to wait for the next one so that I could get in first and get back to the rear where my hamper wouldn't be in people's way. After a while, it came back empty and I got on. And when the crowd pushed off on the top level, I put my hamper back on the contra-gravity and towed it out into the outdoor air, which by this time had gotten almost as cool as a bake oven. I looked up at the sky, where everybody else was looking. The Pinamoondale wasn't visible. It was still a few thousand miles off planet. Big, ragged clouds were still blowing in from the west, very high. And the sunset was even brighter and redder than when I had seen it last ten hours before. It was now about sixteen thirty. Now, before anybody starts asking just who's crazy, let me point out that this is not on Terra, nor on Baldur, nor Thor, nor Odin, nor Freya, nor any other rational planet. This is Fenry, and on Fenry the sunsets, like many other doings, are somewhat peculiar. Fenry is the second planet of a G four star, six hundred and fifty light years to the galactic southwest of the Sol system. Everything else equal, it should have been pretty much Terra type, closer to a cooler primary. And getting about the same amount of radiation. At least, that's what the book says. I was born on Fenry, and have never been off it in the 17 years since. Everything else, however, is not equal. The Fenry year is a trifle shorter than the Terran year we use for the atomic era dating. 8,000 and a few odd galactic standard hours. In that time, Fenry makes almost exactly four axial rotations. This means that on one side, the sun is continuously in the sky for a thousand hours, pouring down unceasing heat, while the other side is in shadow. You sleep eight hours. And when you get up and go outside in an insulated vehicle or an extreme environment, Sue, you find that the shadows have moved only an inch or so, and it's that much hotter. Finally, the sun crawls down to the horizon and hangs there for a few days, periods of 24 G.S. hours, and then slides slowly out of sight. Then, for about a hundred hours, there is a beautiful, unfading sunset, and it's really pleasant outdoors. Then it gets darker and colder, until just before sunrise, it gets almost cold enough to freeze CO2. Then the sun comes up, and we begin all over again. You are picking up the impression, I trust, that as planets go, Fenry is nobody's bargain. It isn't a real hell planet, and spacemen haven't made a swear word out of its name, as they have with the name of Florine Atmosphere Niflheim. But even the Reverend Hiram Zilker, the orthodox monophysite preacher, admits that it's one of those planets that the creator must have gotten a trifle absent-minded with. The chartered company that colonized it back at the end of the 4th century A.E. went bankrupt in 10 years. And it wouldn't have taken that long if communication between Terra and Fenri hadn't been a matter of 6 months each way. When the smash finally came, 250,000 colonists were left stranded. They lost everything they'd put into the company which, for most of them, was all they had. Not a few lost their lives before the Federation Space Navy could get ships here to evacuate them. But about a thousand, who were too poor to make a fresh start elsewhere and too tough for Fenry to kill, refused evacuation, took over all the equipment and installations the Fenry Company had abandoned, and tried to make a living out of the planet. At least, they stayed alive. There are now 20-odd thousand of us, and while we were still very poor, we were very tough, and we brag about it. There were about 2,000 people, 10% of the planetary population on the wide concrete promenade around the spaceport landing pit. I came out among them and set down the hamper with my telecast cameras and recorders, wishing, as usual, that I could find some 10- or 12-year-old kid weak-minded enough to want to be a reporter when he grew up, so that I could have an apprentice to help me with my junk. As the star and only reporter of the greatest and only paper on the planet, I was always on hand when either of the two ships on the Terra Odin Milkron, the Piemunde, and the Cape Canaveral landed. Of course, we always talk to them by screen as soon as they come out of hyperspace and into radio range and get the passenger list and a speed recording of any news they are carrying from the latest native uprising on Thor to the latest political scandal on Venus. Sometime the natives of Thor won't be fighting anybody at all Or the Federation member Republic of Venus Will have some non-scandalous politics And either will be the man-bites-dog story To end man-bites-dog stories While the news is at least six months old Some more than a year A spaceship can log a light year in sixty-odd hours the radio waves still crawl along at the same old 186,000 MPS. I still have to meet the ships. There's always something that has to be picked up personally, usually an interview with some VIP traveling through. This time, though, the big story coming in on Pinamunday was a local item. Paradox. Dad says there is no such thing. He says a paradox is either a verbal contradiction and you get rid of it by restarting it correctly or it's a structural contradiction and you just call it an impossibility and let it go at that. In this case, what was coming in was a real live author who was going to write a travel book about Fenri, the planet with the four-day year. Glenn Mural, which sounded suspiciously like a nom de plume, and nobody here had ever heard of him. That was odd, too. One thing we can really be proud of here, besides the toughness of our citizens, is our public library. When people have to stay underground most of the time to avoid being fried and or frozen to death, they have a lot of time to kill and reading is one of the cheaper, more harmless and profitable ways of doing it. And travel books are a special favor here. I suppose because everybody is hoping to read about a worse place than Fenry. I had checked on Glenn Murel at the library. None of the librarians had ever heard of him. And there wasn't a single mention of him. ...in any of the big catalogs of publications. The first and obvious conclusion would be that Mr. Glenn Miro ...was some swindler posing as an author. The only objection to that... ...was that I couldn't see why any swindler would come to Fenry, ...or what he'd expect to swindle the Fenrisians out of. Of course could be on the land from somewhere. But in that case, why bother with all the cover story? Some of our better-known citizens came here dodging warrants on other planets. I was still wondering about Miral, and somebody behind me greeted me, and I turned around. It was Tom Kivelson. Tom and I are buddies, when he's and Porra. He's just a shade older than I am. He was 18 around noon, and my 18th birthday won't come until midnight. Fenry's standard sundial time. His father is Joe Kivelson, the skipper of the Javelin. Tom is a sort of junior engineer, second gunner, and about third harpooner. We went to school together which is to say a couple of years at Professor Hartzenbosch's learning to read and write and put figures together. That is all the schooling anybody on Fenry gets, although Joe Kivelson sent Tom's older sister, Linda, to school on Terra. Anybody who stays here has to dig out education for himself. Tom and I were still digging for hours. Each of us envied the other, and we weren't thinking seriously about it. I imagine that sea monster hunting was wonderfully thrilling and romantic, and Tom had the idea that being a newsman was real hot stop. When we actually stopped to think about it though, we realized that neither of us would trade jobs and take anything at all for Boo. Tom couldn't string together three sentences, no, one sentence, together to save his life, and I'm just a town boy who likes to live in something that isn't pitching end for end every minute. Tom is about three inches taller than I am, and about thirty pounds heavier. Like all monster hunters, he's trying to grow a beard, though at present it's just a blonde chin fuzz. I was surprised to see him dressed as I was, in shorts and sandals, in a white shirt and a light jacket. Ordinarily, even in town, he wears boat clothes. I looked around behind him and saw the brass tip of a scabbard under the jacket. Any time a hunter-shipman doesn't have his knife on him, he isn't wearing anything else. I wondered about his being in port now. I knew Joe Kivelson wouldn't bring his ship in just to meet the Pinamunde, with only a couple of hundred hours hunting left till the storms and the coal. I thought you were down in the South Ocean, I said. It's going to be a special meeting of the co-op, he said. We only heard about it last evening, by which he meant after 1,800 of the previous Galactic Standard Day. He named another hunter ship captain, who would call the Javelin by screen. We screened everybody else we could. That was the way they ran things in the Hunter's Cooperative. Steve Ravick would wait till everybody had their ships down on the coast of Herman Roach's land, and then he would call a meeting and pack it with his stooges and hooligans and get anything he wanted voted through. I'd always wondered how long the real hunters were going to stand for that. They'd been standing for it ever since I could remember anything outside of my own playpen, which of course hadn't been too long. I was about to say something to that effect, and then somebody yelled, there she is. I took a quick look at the radar bowls to see which way they were pointed, and followed them up to the sky, and caught a tiny twinkle through a cloud drift. After a moment's mental arithmetic to figure out how high she'd have to be to catch the sunlight, I relaxed. Even with the telephoto, I'd only get a picture of the size of a pinhead, so I fixed the position in my mind, and then looked around at the crowd. Among them were two men, both well-dressed. One was tall and slender, with small hands and feet. The other was short and stout, with a scrubby, gray-brown mustache. The slender one had a bulge under his left arm, and the short and stout jaw bulged over the right hip. The former was Steve Ravick, the boss of the Hunter's Cooperative, and his companion was the Honorable Morton Halstock, mayor of Port Sander, and consequently the planetary government of Fenry. They had held their respective positions for as long as I could remember anything at all. I can never remember an election in Port Sander, or an election of officers in the co-op. Ravik had a bunch of goons and trigger men. I could see a couple of them loitering in the background, who kept down opposition for him. So did Halstar. Only his wore badges and called themselves police. Once in a while, Dad would write a blistering editorial about one or the other, or both of them. Whenever he did, I would put my gun on, and so would Julio Cubana, the one-legged compositor who was the third member of the Times staff, and we would take turns making sure nobody got behind Dad's back. Nothing ever happened, though, and that always rather hurt me. Those two racketeers were in so tight, they didn't need to care what the times printed or cast about them. Halstock glanced over in my direction and said something to Ravik. Ravik gave a sneering laugh, and then he crushed out the cigarette he was smoking on the palm of his left hand. That was a regular trick of his, showing how tough he was. Dad says that when you see somebody showing off, ask yourself whether he's trying to impress other people or himself. I wondered which was the case with Steve Raving. Then I looked up again. The Pinamunda was coming down as fast as she could without overheating from atmosphere friction. She was almost buckshot size to the naked eye, and a couple of tugs were getting ready to go up and meet her. I got the telephoto camera out of the hamper, checked it, and aimed it. It has a shoulder stock, and hand grips, and a trigger like a submachine gun. I caught the ship and the finder, and squeezed the trigger for a couple of seconds. It would be about five minutes till the tugs got to her and anything else happened, so I put down the camera and looked around. Coming through the crowd, walking as though the concrete under him was pitching and rolling like a ship's deck when contragravity in a storm, was bishware. He got sight of us, waved, overbalanced himself and recovered and then changed course to starboard and bore down on us. He was carrying about his usual cargo, and as usual the manifest would read Baldur Honey Rum from Harry Wong's bar. Bish wasn't his real name. Neither, I suspected, was Ware. When you first landed on Fenry, some five years ago. Somebody had nicknamed him the Bishop, and before long that had gotten cut to one syllable. He looked like a Bishop, or at least like what anybody who's never seen a Bishop outside of a screenplay would think a Bishop looked like. He was a big man, not fat, but tall and portly. He had a ruddy face that always wore an expression of benevolent wisdom and the more cargo he took on, the wiser and more benevolent he looked. He had iron-gray hair, but he wasn't old. You could tell that by the backs of his hands, they weren't wrinkled or creppy, and the veins didn't protrude. And drunk or sober, though I never remembered seeing him in the latter condition, he had the fastest reflexes of anybody I knew. I saw him once, standing at the bar in Harry Wong's, knock over an open bottle with his left elbow. He spun half around, grabbed it by the neck, and set it up, all in one motion, without spilling a drop. And he went on talking as though nothing had happened. He was quoting Homer, I remember him but you could tell that he was thinking in the original ancient Greek and translating it to lingua terra as he went. He was always dressed as he was now, in a conservative black suit, the jacket a trifle longer than usual, and a black neck cloth with an Uller organic opal pen. He didn't work at anything, but quarterly, once every planetary day a draft on the banking cartel would come in for him, and he'd deposit it with Port Sander Fidelity and Trust. If anybody was unmannerly enough to ask him about it, he always said that he had a rich uncle on Terra. When I was a kid, well, more of a kid than I am now, I used to believe he really was a bishop. Unfrocked, of course, or ungaitered, or whatever they call it when they give a bishop the heave ho. A lot of people who weren't kids still believed that, and they blamed him on every denomination from Angelicans to Zen Buddhists, not even missing the Satanists, and there were all sorts of theories about what he'd done to get excommunicated, the mildest of which was that somewhere, There was a cathedral standing unfinished because he'd hypered out with the building fund. It was generally agreed that his ecclesiastical organization was paying him to stay out there in the boondocks where he wouldn't cause them further embarrassment. I was pretty sure, myself, that he was being paid by somebody, probably his family, to stay out of sight. The colonial planets are full of that sort of remittance men. Bish and I were pretty good friends. There were certain old ladies, of both sexes and all ages, of whom Professor Hartzenbosch was an example, who took Dad to task occasionally for letting me associate with him. Dad simply ignored them. As long as I was going to be a reporter... I'd have to have news sources, and Bish was a dandy. He knew all the disreputable characters in town, which saved me having to associate with all of them. And it is sad but true that you get very few news stories in Sunday school. Far from fearing that Bish would be a bad influence on me, he rather hoped I'd be a good one on Bish. I had that in mind too, if I could think of any way of managing it. Bish had been a good man once. He still was, except for one thing. You could tell that before he'd started drinking, he'd really been somebody, somewhere. Then something pretty bad must have happened to him, and now he was there on Fenry, trying to hide from it behind a bottle. Something ought to be done to give him a shove up on his feet again. I hate waste, and a man of the sort he must have been turning himself into the rumpe he was now was waste of the worst kind. It would take a lot of doing, though, and careful tactical planning. Preaching at him would be worse than useless, and so it's simply trying to get him to stop drinking. That would be what Doc rojanski at the hospital would call treating the symptoms. The thing to do was make him want to stop drinking, and I didn't know how I was going to manage that. I thought a couple of times of getting him to work on the times, but we barely made enough money out of it for ourselves, and with his remittance, he didn't need to work. I had a lot of other ideas now and then, but every time I took a second look at one, it got sick and died. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.